Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Brighter Future, Laidlaw and Company's podcast series. I'm Rick Calhoun, CEO of Laidlaw Wealth Management, and I'm fortunate again to be joined today by David Garrity, Chief Market Strategist for Laidlaw and Company. David, I trust you had a nice weekend, although you needed your barbecue for more warmth than cooking. Snow in May, just, just a little odd. Yeah, not exactly the time of year for a polar vortex, but then we live in interesting times. Nevertheless, Rick, the outdoor grill was indeed manned and ready for the Mother's Day cookout. Thank you for asking. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll, we'll dispense with what the menu was, but uh, I think odd, David, is maybe a good way to characterize the markets this past week. We had, again, some pretty bad economic data. We had mediocre earnings, and the stock market just keeps running higher. Saw the Dow Jones up 608 points for the week, or 2.6%, closed at 24.331. The S&P was up 3.5%, over 2,900. And the NASDAQ, it blew everything away. It was up 6% for the week, cracked the 9,000 barrier again. And amazingly, it is now up on the year. It's up 2,500 points, or 38%, from that March 23rd low that we put in. Not bad considering the damage that the COVID-19 has wrought on our economy. So, David, what's your take on what's going on? Rick, there is a saying on Wall Street that you go with what is working. And this is the primary insight behind the momentum style of investing, which draws on the first law of Newtonian physics, namely that an object remains in motion unless acted upon by a force. As we know, the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has been met with a record level of fiscal and monetary stimulus, which, while it has not presented, prevented a record level of unemployment, as indicated by the April 2020 employment report released on, released on Friday, May 8th, it has nevertheless served to provide the liquidity necessary to propel stock prices, as measured by the S&P 500 index, to a 31% recovery from the March 23rd low. Now, within the stock market, growth stocks have led the recovery with a 33% gain, while value stocks have posted a more modest 27%. This is not a function of growth performing worse than value in the S&P 500's 34% sell-off from the February 19th peak, in which growth declined 31%, while value plummeted 37%. With the S&P 500 now off 13% from its peak on February 19th, investors should note that growth is, only, is down only 9%, while value is still down 20%. Put it this way, if investors were long growth and short value from the peak to now, they would be 11 percentage points ahead. So clearly, growth is working in both down and up markets. The reasons supporting growth's outperformance are relatively clear in that the shift to the COVID work-from-home economy has made our society increasingly dependent on the technology companies who comprise a significant proportion of the growth stock index. The tech sector's recent first quarter 2020 results have demonstrated continued revenue and profit growth in the face of a shrinking economy. With the likelihood that the work-from-home economy will persist as the return to the office will be gradual and likely not to return to pre-COVID levels, we have witnessed what may perhaps be considered an enduring repricing of the tech sector. Bottom line, the pace of recovery is clearly uncertain, and I expect that for the stock market to continue its recovery from the March low, 
that further fiscal and monetary relief will be necessary. To that end, it will be critical to investors to see how Congress performs in this regard, since with the upcoming general election in November 2020, the window of opportunity may be limited as campaigns start to get way underway over the summer. Hopefully, the politicians will understand that an employed constituent is a likely supporter and take the necessary actions. Meanwhile, although it is not reconvened, the U.S. House of Representatives is expected to hold votes as early as this week on a massive economic aid package for state and local governments. Yeah, it sounds like they're uh, they're making some progress. I heard the interview with uh, Larry Kudlow on, on Bloomberg, and he makes it seem like there's discussions going on behind the scenes. Hopefully, it moves forward without a lot of rancor. Um, you know, Dave, let's let's unpack the markets a little bit and, and talk about an area where I know you focus a lot of your research, and, and and obviously that's technology. You recently were on Bloomberg Radio. You were talking about names like Google and Apple, Amazon, and and a few moments ago, we referenced the move the Nasdaq has made off the March 23rd low. But something has become a bit distressing in the concentration of the money in what are being called now the Big Five. So Google. Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, and, and Facebook. While the NASDAQ is now positive for the year, we've got roughly 75% of the stocks in the index are actually down. So the NASDAQ, like the S&P 500, is a weighted capital. It's market weighted, um, and larger companies count for more. So as of Friday's close, the top 10 stocks, which includes names like Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, now account for 44% of the value out of the 2,700 names that are actually in the index. And they're not cheap. Trade for about 47 times 2020 earnings on average. So while the outsize weighting of major tech names have fueled the NASDAQ's bounce back, and it's been fantastic, should investors be worried because it's been so confined to a couple of names? I mean, certainly investors should always be concerned when there's a narrow market advance. Um, but we have to consider the fact that going into this economic downturn, which arguably is faster and harder and steeper than the fall off into the Great Depression back in the early 30s. Uh, we have to note that in, in an economically constrained environment, uh, large cap companies, those that are well-funded, strong balance sheets, strong margins, and you know are vital to the population's daily operations um, are going to get bigger. So this is an environment where, um, you know, smaller companies are certainly feeling the pain, but, um, you know, those that are in solid position, uh, such as these names, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Facebook, uh, clearly have more opportunities on the margin. Now, last week, noted value investor Clifford Asnes published a piece defending value investing titled, Is Systematic Value Investing Dead? And in Afnis's analysis, he said investors are simply paying way more than usual for the stocks they love versus the ones they hate, and doing it in a highly diversified way up and down the cross-section of stocks. The analysis you know, covers 50 years of stock market history going back to 1965, an impressive span of time that lends Asnes' conclusion substantial weight. However, it is interesting to note that in 1965, Gordon Moore, who founded Fairchild Semiconductor and became CEO of Intel, Gordon Moore published a paper in 1965 with an insight that became known as Moore's Law, which accurately predicted that computing speed per dollar invested would double every two years or so. 
And it's good for investors to consider that this growth in computational productivity has supported the difference we are seeing in today's market, as there's clearly an evident divide between those companies that have successfully leveraged Moore's Law and continue to do so, and those companies that are being disrupted by it. You know, the period since 1965 has seen change unfold at an accelerating pace, and perhaps the post-COVID work-from-home economy should be considered a tipping point. All I can tell you is that the value investors need to be aware of how the underpinnings of our economy are shifting in making appraisals of value and allocations of capital. Otherwise, you know, value investors risk coming up a dime or more short uh, in this market, as we saw earlier. And bottom line, if investors want more, they better first get more, as in Moore's Law. I like what you did there. That was good. I'm impressed. Uh, let's, let's move to something that many veteran market watchers paid close attention to uh, last week, but I don't think the average investor did. And that was late last week when the federal funds futures began to indicate that the Federal Reserve's key policy interest rate would fall below zero by late this year. Now, while negative interest rates have been imposed by other central banks, notably the ECB and the Bank of Japan, Fed officials have indicated on several occasions they don't favor a similar policy. And obviously, it's possible we could see negative yields on treasuries. I mean, they trade every day. But a negative yield on a two-year isn't the same thing as the Fed going negative. So let me ask this as sort of a two-part question, David. First, I've read that negative rates is a term that's used to describe a phenomenon that can have different meanings. And, and I'm just, can you elaborate a little bit on that for our listeners? Because it, it's a bit confusing. Yeah, no, certainly, Rick. Um, you know, negative rates generally mean that a bank will charge you a storage fee for holding your cash rather than offer, offer interest, interest income, as an incentive for saving. You know, as such, with negative interest rates, Holding cash balances for investment purposes is discouraged, and instead, cash should be used for consumption because otherwise, the holder of cash is penalized. With negative rates, the greatest value of cash is the present. To hold it for future periods is to receive lesser value. And for me, that's the best definition of negative rates that I have. Got it. Got it. It, it makes perfect sense, and, and, I, and I appreciate that. So let me ask you the second part, and, and that is maybe the more important. Could we see negative rates in the United States like we've seen in Europe and in Japan? And if so, does that sentence our economy to a future slow growth like they've seen in both Japan and the EU? Yeah, Rick, the use of negative rates as a monetary policy tool has been when deflation is a significant concern. In recessions, people and businesses tend to hold on to their cash while they wait for the economy to improve. But this behavior can weaken the economy further as a lack of spending causes further job losses, lowers profits, and causes prices to drop, all of which serve to reinforce people's fears, giving them an incentive to hoard cash even more. As spending slows even more, prices drop again, creating another incentive for people to wait as prices fall further in what becomes a deflationary downward spiral. Now, with the U.S. unemployment rate at 14.7% and official views that the unemployment rate may rise to 20 to 25% before a gradual recovery unfolds, paced by COVID containment measures, the U.S. economy is clearly at risk of experiencing deflation as incomes and consumer spending contract sharply. 
The April employment report presented a statistical oddity as average hourly earnings rose. However, this was due to how the job losses were so overwhelmingly concentrated among lower income service industry workers. Now, one important point to note here is that lower income households have a higher propensity to consume, if for no other reason than they have less savings to fall back on. As mentioned earlier, Congress needs to act to provide further fiscal relief to support incomes. Otherwise, the U.S. economy will face a significant risk of deflation, among other possible negative consequences from the COVID depression. Deflation follows in the footsteps of the demand destruction pandemics such as COVID cause. At present, the Bloomberg Global GDP tracker is indicating uh, a minus 4.8% contraction in 2020 GDP worldwide. On a global basis, it's estimated that a 20% contraction of income and consumption could push 524 million people into poverty. Even assuming a 10% contraction would result in an additional 249 million people living in poverty. With the COVID depression, it is important for investors to consider the possibility that poverty will become more widespread in the U.S. So as a result of that element, we think you know, negative interest rates is something that people are properly concerned about and see that as being an indication of a substantially deflationary economy. Okay, got it. Scary, very scary to see the potential of that kind of uh, poverty cropping up. Um, but it makes sense when you've got 30 million people unemployed in seven weeks in just the United States. Uh, I don't even know what the numbers are across the rest of the world. Um, let's make a 180 degree turn here and talk about something that has sort of been forgotten for a little while, and that's Bitcoin. Uh, last week, the billionaire investor, Paul Tudor Jones, one of the first well-known hedge fund managers, uh, he started Tudor Investment Corporation when he, in 1980, he was 25, said he thinks Bitcoin, which is, is uh, you know, very controversial, reminds him of gold in the 1970s and may be the best hedge against inflation in the age of coronavirus. Paul Tudor Jones is definitely someone we should pay attention to. Um, he made a name for himself and lost a lot of money by correctly calling the 87 crash. He shorted Japanese equities a couple years later, just before that market collapsed. And then this past summer, in June of 2019, he made a great call on gold that has played out really well. So as someone who knows a great deal about Bitcoin, is Paul Tudor Jones right, David? Um, you know, Rick, while we earlier discussed the risk of deflation from demand destruction in the wake of the COVID pandemic, we have to consider that assuming the tsunami of fiscal and monetary relief uh, that's been unleashed across the world works in serving to stabilize the global economy and putting it on a path towards recovery, there will be a distinct possibility that inflation returns. You know, to that end, Paul Tudor Jones co-authored a paper published last week titled The Great Monetary Inflation, in which he notes, in a world that craves new safe assets, there may be a growing role for Bitcoin. Jones offers this insight in the knowledge that monetary aggregates, such as M2, are growing at the fastest rate since the end of World War II, when annual M2 growth peaked at almost 27%. As the Federal Reserve is primarily focused on the employment support element of its two-part mandate, the other part being controlling inflation, Jones notes that any interest rate hiking cycle is likely to be delayed and unambitious. 
Separately, Jones sees in the COVID pandemic inflationary developments, such as a breakdown in global supply chains, spilling over to goods prices, and in the process, undoing two decades of disinflation attributable to globalization. Now, against this analytical backdrop, Jones offers a roster of likely inflation edges in which Bitcoin ranks number four after gold at number one. The yield curve, which would involve being long two-year bonds and short 30-year bonds as number three, as number two, and the third choice being the NASDAQ 100, highlighting those mega cap stocks we were talking about earlier. No wild-eye crypto libertarian. Jones is just a seasoned successful investor who wants to capture the opportunity set while protecting my capital in ever-changing environments. For Jones, Bitcoin represents the only large tradable asset in the world that has a known fixed maximum supply. And in a world where currencies are being devalued through massive monetary stimulus, assets that have a relatively fixed supply, such as Bitcoin and gold, are indeed effective hedges against the anticipated inflation to follow this record monetary stimulus. That would be a hell of a portfolio if we had gold, we're long to your bond, short 30, the NASDAQ 100, and Bitcoin. I wonder if we could get that through compliance and build a model to talk to uh, our asset management guys. I like that. Uh, <laughs> by the investment committee. That's exactly right. We're going to run it by the investor community. I like it. Yeah, David, as we wrap up another episode this week, I thought maybe we could look ahead a little bit. Uh, last week, Professor Jeremy Siegel from the University of Pennsylvania said, we've seen the lows in March and we will never see those lows again, expressing optimism about the path forward for the U.S. stock market um, and, and the historically bad job numbers that were out. Uh, but his, his final statement was fantastic in, in, in that he said, I think 2021 could be a boom year. With the liquidity the Fed is adding, it could be a really, really good year. Would you agree with his sentiment? Uh, and, and let's unpack some thoughts there. Yeah, focusing on Siegel's point relative to liquidity, Rick, I agree that the March lows are unlikely to be retested on the conditions that Congress acts to provide further fiscal relief and that measures to contain a second wave of COVID infection prove effective. On the first qualification, we noted earlier that the U.S. House of Representatives will likely act this week to provide further relief, but this is no guarantee that the U.S. Senate will approve, especially as Majority Leader Senator McConnell has taken the view that states should be allowed to declare bankruptcy to restructure obligations such as public sector pensions. Now, to our view, such a political exercise would be, you know, with the U.S. economy, would be akin to playing a game of musical chairs on the decks of the Titanic. So we certainly hope that cooler minds will prevail. As to whether COVID containment measures will prove effective, we note that infection rates in the U.S. outside of New York City have remained high. Consequently, it's possible that with at least 10 states moving to reopen without meeting CDC guidelines, a spike in COVID infection rates may occur in June. Uh, but again, you know, we keep our fingers crossed. Consequently, you know, we are at a delicate point, but I remain cautiously optimistic that the market will continue to grind higher from here. Go with what is working. Go with growth. I agree. And I sure hope that we all end up getting an A 
in Professor Siegel's uh, class around this market, without a doubt. You know, it's funny, David, I'm wondering if that joke is going to change soon, and it'll be, you went swimming on a Carnival Cruise Line pool during the COVID crisis, as opposed to rearranging the decks on the USS Titanic. I'll have to wait and see. Uh, <laughs> exactly. David, again, thank you for your time. This was a fantastic episode. Uh, we look forward to speaking to you again on a future version of A Brighter Future. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by Laidlaw and Company, together with its affiliates and their employees, Laidlaw, solely for informational purposes. Laidlaw is not providing or undertaking to provide any financial, economic, legal, accounting, tax, or other advice in or by virtue of this podcast. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be, nor should be construed as the provision of investment advice by Laidlaw to that listener or generally and do not result in any listener being considered a client or customer of Laidlaw. The information statement, comments, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast do not constitute and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or make or consider any investment course of action. Laidlaw does not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast and any liability therefore is expressly disclaimed. Laidlaw does not undertake any obligation whatsoever to provide any form of update, amendment, change, or correction to any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions set forth in this podcast. No part of this podcast may, without Laidlaw's prior written consent, be reproduced, redistributed, published, copied, or duplicated in any form by any means.